0: This is Yudaha Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. There is a war going on, not just a war for the homeland, and not just a war to defend our people physically, but also a cultural war in Israeli society. Between those Jews loyal to our native culture and identity and forces of westernization that come in many flavors, sometimes liberal, sometimes conservative, but all promoting a cultural imperialist agenda, trying to transform Israel into something we're not. And one of the oldest threats of this nature is the threat of Christian missionaries, trying to target some of Israel's weakest sectors. So with me on the show today is Rabbi Tovia Singer of OutreachJudaism.org, who actually specializes in resisting Christian missionary activity here in Israel. Rav Tovia, welcome to the show. Great to be on with you, so first of all, it's been a long time. I hope you're doing well. For those who don't know, both Rav and I had radio shows together at uh, Israel National Radio about a dozen years ago. So what have you been up to these last few years? Well, what I, I've done is really a very,
1: very unique. Indonesia is the, as it turns out, the largest Muslim country in the world, but there are many, many Jews in that country who had converted to Christianity. Um, as you said, all of my work is devoted to helping Jews who have been converted to Christianity return back to the Jewish faith, and my work consists of also, of course, educating the Jewish community about the dangers of these missionary uh, groups. I wrote, you know, many books on the topic, and so on. So what's great, what's really been wild, is spending five years in Indonesia helping hundreds of Jews do tshuva, return back to their Jewish faith. And then I came back here to Israel uh, about a year and a half ago. And what's going on here in Israel is astounding. Um, I was shocked. I actually came to Israel in November 2018, and I engaged in a debate with a Christian missionary. And I was stunned to see the extent of this cancer, which I, I knew was very serious, but I didn't know it was stage four and for those who don't know, there is no stage five. So the amount of missionary activity going on here in Israel was shocking, and I decided immediately that I had to come back to Israel as soon as possible so that I could fight these missionaries and inoculate the community in Israel to, about the dangers that these groups pose.
0: And this is what you're doing full-time now? This is what you've committed yourself to?
1: I, I've really been doing this for 40 years full-time. I mean, this is all I do is um, is speak about this. It's because it's I'm. There's really almost no one doing this, so therefore I I spend a lot of time a huge YouTube channel, which is seen by million millions of people, literally, and this helps so many people learn about the Jewish faith and why the very serious attacks against the Jewish faith that are launched like missiles, spiritual missiles against our nation, why they are wrong, so I have to respond to that.
0: The wording you use, it it rubs me the wrong way a little bit, I'll be honest, when you talk about the Jewish faith, Uh, because for me, I come from a perspective that even sees that as to a certain extent the Christianization of our identity, you know, I think that the Jewish people really predate the social constructs of religion and and ethnicity and race, etc. What we are is really a a civilization that has an identity, has a culture, has a value system, has a worldview, has a Torah, has has Nivua. But, uh, you know, one of the things I often try to fight against in, in my work is the reduction of jewish identity to a religious identity so i don't know if that's what you meant when you said the jewish faith no i i think you're right and i stand corrected i, I want to
1: emphasize what you're saying because we're very unusual people the tyrus says that we're a unique nation but as it turns out we are an ethno-religious group means we're a nation we're an arm and we're a people that are called upon to be a light to the world, a light to the nations, an Oral Agayim, Isaiah 42 and 49. So uh, just the opposite. I stand corrected. You're right. It's an attack against our civilization, what we are here for, our mandate, and it's an assault to destroy it. And as you said, you were right. This is an assault that's been going on. This particular problem is a 2,000-year-old problem
0: that is not going away quickly. Right, right. You know, one of the most, really one of the most abhorrent things to our people for thousands of years has been idolatry. Like this is something that we're constantly warned about by our sages, by our prophets, in certain instances by the creator himself, that we have to ensure there is no idolatry in our borders and ultimately lead mankind, like you said, become a light unto nations that actually lead humanity into a world where people are not succumbing to this. And so when I look at what's taking place, you know, the way I'm perceiving it is really, you know, outsiders coming into our land and essentially try to lead our people astray, some of the weakest sectors of Israeli society astray, towards worshipping idols. In fact, what makes us unique is
1: that we are called to be a kingdom of priests, that we have to be a light to the world. That's our whole mandate. And what is happening now is mind-blowing because it's the reverse. Instead of the Jewish people seizing that mandate, which we are, but not to the extent it should be, these missionaries are doing the opposite. They are trying to influence, bring in idolatry into the land of Israel. And it goes without saying, these missionaries are very active in the united states jews for jesus is all over the world and it is very likely that every one of your listeners are familiar with groups like jews for jesus chosen people ministries Uh, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year just evangelizing the jews in the united states
0: what's going on here is a complete nightmare so maybe we can talk a little bit about what's going on here, because what I'm really hoping we could explore is how the missionaries are gaining a foothold in our country, who's enabling it, why it's dangerous, how it can be stopped. Oh, yeah, but this is, I, if you're listening to this, just make sure you're
1: sitting down. These missionaries have a belief that, in, that the Jews play a role in bringing about Jesus' second coming. It's based on a text in Matthew 23, where they believe that in order for Jesus to make a second coming, by the way, just as an aside, there's no second coming in Tanakh, but second comings always have to be invented uh, for messiahs who have failed. Uh, so they believe that in order to trigger Jesus' second coming, a mass of Jews have to be converted to Christianity. One other thing, they realize that the church in the past has made mistakes in that the church has presented this as you need to convert to Christianity and abandon being Jewish. What Christian missionaries have realized after the 67 war, because they thought Jesus was going to make his second coming in the year 2000, is that that they have to start using Jewish terms and don't tell Jews to, convert to Christianity but become a messianic Jew so they, they're playing games with semantics but ontologically it's all the same so, what they 're doing is they 're getting a grip, a foothold here in israel very powerful it 's very, very dangerous, and they believe that the conversion of the Jews, especially here is in Israel, is necessary to bring about the War of Armageddon and the come and jesus' second coming that 's what they 're here for so this is a very, very serious matter, and that 's why jews for G- the the conferences that took place it was mostly in lausanne switzerland western switzerland of how to evangelize the jews took place in 1972 5 years after the 67 war now that jerusalem is in the hands of the jews they believe that's prophecy and it is prophecy but they they said well now we have to convert the jews but what's failed in the past is to tell the jews to oh, you have to become Christian. No, call yourself a Messianic Jew. We'll call him Yeshua. We won't say Jesus. We'll, we'll take... That's, that's how they do it. Right.
0: So, you know, it's interesting. When I look at the last century or so of history, the way I understand events is that in 1948, when we declared independence here, when we declared a state, a Christianity suffered a crisis of faith because mm-hmm. for many, many centuries the Christians were essentially um, uh, proving their faith by pointing at the Jew and saying the Jew is an exile, the Jew is downtrodden, the Jew is basically our doormat, um, because they rejected our man-god, they rejected Jesus. And in 1948, they had a crisis, and they basically reconciled that crisis, I think, with two answers to what was taking place. Number one, they said, well, first of all, we gave it to them, meaning like we gave them the state, the Christian world, or the Western world, gave the Jews some kind of bomb shelter state because we had mercy on them after the Holocaust. And the second was, they're not really in the biblical land of Israel. They're not in Bethlehem. They're not in Hebron. They're not in Shiloh. They're not in Bethel. They're not in real Jerusalem. real Jerusalem. They're not in Shechem. They're in uh, Netanya and Tel Aviv and uh, Haifa. We could live with that. But in 1967, the world experienced, uh, as you said, a biblical-style miracle, but according to the Jewish interpretation of Scripture. And I think the greatest victim of the Six-Day War, of the 1967 war, was not Egypt, was not Syria, was not Jordan. I think the greatest victim of that war was actually Christianity. Because we smashed their idol, we showed them that their interpretation of scripture of all these centuries was wrong. And I think that the reason why Western civilization has been so obsessed with dividing our land into two states, basically removing us from the cradle of Jewish civilization from the Judean-Samaria regions, is because if they could undo our victory of the Six Day War, they can kind of you know I subconsciously I think subconsciously they believe if they could undo our achievements of that war they can take away the historic meaning from that war that's
1: absolutely correct all everything you're saying Yehuda, was expressed explicitly by the church fathers what you the church fathers pointed to jerusalem and said you see that the temple mount has been destroyed the jews were exiled and that's because not only do they reject jesus but they killed him and all the church fathers said that with one voice. And, of course, the Catholic Church said, the Orthodox Church all said that. All the church fathers saw that as a complete vindication of it. And therefore, the notion that the Jews should return to their land, that's why the Vatican didn't recognize Israel. They didn't recognize Israel until we had that nightmare of the of the Oslo Accords. But That's a whole other thing. The Orthodox Church, of course, would not recognize Israel because the Church Fathers openly said, Augustine, in his book called The City of God, which is his magnum opus, said the Jews will never return. And in fact, the Jews as a civilization, as a People have to live in Christian countries as subordinate to everyone else, so everyone could look upon the Jew and see his how he's downtrodden, has no power of his own, and that's why he was answering the question of why did God keep the Jews? If we're no longer chosen, then why are there still Jews around five centuries after Christianity began? So he said the reason why the Jews are here is God is keeping them around in a state of being completely downtrodden, down so that they will be forever a monument to what happens to people that rejects christ now imagine augustine is the most important western church father and his book the the city of god in which he seeks to explain why was rome destroyed in 410 is the his most important work and this is the he has chapters just slaughtering the jews this was exactly correct. This was the Christian thinking in the West and in the East. The Jews are never to return, never to have sovereignty. And if they live, they have to live in a, a subordinate position to the Christians. And that's why Jews were not allowed into universities and so on and so on. However, okay, that all said, there's a, a guy who was born in the year 1800 exactly. His name was Charles Nelson Darby. He was born in Plymouth, and he came to the United States, and he started a movement in the 19th century called premillennial dispensationalism. This movement caught on like wildfire in America because it was spread by other missionaries, famous Moody, after whom a Moody Bible Institute was named, and Cyrus Schofield, who wrote a Bible commentary that was very famous. He was a congressman from Kansas. This spread like wildfire. What did he say? He said the church was completely wrong about this. And in fact, the covenant that God has with the Jews is eternal. And it can't be broken. And the physical Jews are the chosen people. And the church has another covenant, a spiritual covenant with God. But there are two covenants. This idea spread, especially because of Cyrus Schofield's it's called the Schofield Bible. It's very, very famous. And it's, and it was very, very attractive. In fact, Je- Belfort was a person who believed in this. Belfort, the foreign secretary of the United Kingdom, he was a dispensationalist. He, he believed it. So these guys saw the return of the Jews to Israel as biblical prophecy in 67. They saw that as biblical prophecy unfolding. But it's very important for your your listeners to understand the vast majority of the Christian world, there are about two billion Christians in the world. People don't realize it's almost one out of three people. So... The vast majority of the world believe that the Jews are no longer chosen. They believe in what's called replacement theology. As you said, Yehuda, that is the Jews were once chosen, but that chosenness has been obrogated completely and the church has replaced Israel. It's also called covenant theology, many names for it. They are the only one segment which became very prominent in the United States. It is that iteration that said, no, God has two covenants and God has chosen the Jews and Israel, every square inch of it, belongs to the Jews and nobody else. Well,
0: those Christian Zionists, what are they looking to see happen in our country?
1: A, they want to convert the Jews and bring
0: the Jews to Jesus because
1: in Matthew twenty three thirty nine, we are told by Matthew that Jesus said, I will not return unless you say blesses he that comes in the Lord, name of the Lord. Jesus, in that framework, I don't believe anybody said anything like that, but that's how the verse goes. So because he's speaking to Jews, the church, they understand to mean that the conversion of the Jews is essential for Jesus to make a second coming. That's one. Stage two is the War of Armageddon, in which they believe two-thirds, it's based on a complete misreading of Zechariah chapter 13 verse 8-9 and that is that two-thirds of the Jews have to, are going to be killed. It's not that they want that to happen, but they believe it's going to happen. And as it turns out, the two, it doesn't even say two-thirds, but the two parts Uh, the Pishnayim are talking about non-Jews. That means Zechariah is saying that two segments of the non-Jewish world will be destroyed because they are going to war against Jerusalem, as has already been described in Zechariah in 8 and 12. But Vahashlishes and a third part, Yivoser, that means there will be a third section of non-Jews who will embrace the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they'll say, you are my God, and God will say, you are my people. So the point is, the Christians completely don't understand this but we're talking about your question is what do they think so they think there'll be a grand war of armageddon triggered by iran persia because persia is mentioned explicitly in ezekiel 38 and then in that war two-thirds of the jews will be killed but then jesus is going to make a second coming and the leftover jews are then going to accept jesus as their lord and savior and become christians
0: that's how it goes is there a rapture for those of us who don't
1: the rapture is based on First Thessalonians 4.17, where Paul says that, that in, in, during this period of tribulation, the Christians are going to be sucked up into the clouds, and then judgment is going to come upon everyone else. Now, there is nothing remotely resembling any of this in the Jewish scriptures? There's no, there is no rapture in the Jewish scriptures. And Paul said that he expected to happen immediately. And of course, it's two thousand years, and the clock is still ticking. So this is all—I mean, I, I'm calling it Christian nonsense, but it is. That means it's, it has no base in Tanakh. It has basis in in Greek thinking and so on. Uh, but they believe that the true Christians are going to be fly into the air, and the, and everyone else is going to come into judgment and they're here to convert the Jews primarily. One other thing, the Christian Bible openly says that you have to convert the Jew before any non-Jew. Uh, one other point, because you asked, about well, what is the mind frame? Why are they doing this? The fact, this goes to what you said, Yehudim, you the fact that of all people in the world who did not accept Christianity are the Jews, this is a tremendous psychological and credibility problem to the church. Because the idea of a Messiah is uniquely Jewish. No one else was waiting for a Messiah. The only people on earth that can read their Bible in its original language are Jews. So, And we have a reputation for being a rather intelligent nation. So the very people who are looking for a Messiah understand what a Messiah means. Are The very people who say that Jesus is not the Messiah, he's nothing. Zero. It's not like in Islam where he's Jesus is like a somebody. He's just not the Son of God. He's nothing. So to them, only the conversion of the Jew can lend any credibility to the Church. And if I may, one caveat, what bothers them moreover is that why is it that the only Jews they can convert are Jews who know nothing? Why can't they convert Jews like Yehudah Rai who went to Yeshiva, who studied, who studied Tanakh? Why can't they convert Jews who sitting and learning? That means if their claim is true that the, that the Jewish Bible prophesizes the truth of Christianity. Why is it that the more a Jew knows about his Bible, the less likely it is that he's going to join Jews for Jesus? This, to them, is a reality that is completely unacceptable.
0: Very well said. And I I really do appreciate you working with me on making this very introductory because I think a lot of our listeners probably don't know very much about this topic. And it's very helpful. I'm also learning a tremendous amount just from hearing you speak. And clearly, uh, this is a a very important conversation that's not taking place as much as it should be in the Jewish world right now, uh, given the threats that do exist. I'm just curious to know, you know, do you believe that there was a historical figure Jesus? Like, Do you believe that he was a real person? Do you believe he was a composite of several people? How do you understand the historical figure of Jesus? So whenever
1: we talk about history, we, we can't talk with, speak with any certainty. We can only speak of likelihood because unlike the hard sciences where any claim could be replicated, Right, if someone says that soap floats, you couldn't then go test that out. But the problem with history is you can't repeat it. So, what you're doing is you're looking for what is the moral, given what we have. And let me just tell you, listeners, we have very little, meaning there's not a single contemporaneous historian of when Christian sages lived from roughly, let's say, the year 6 BC to 30. Let's just say that there's not one historian that that. It says that's that says that Jesus existed. Nothing, zero. In fact, a first non-Christian to write one word about Christianity is Pliny the Younger in one hundred and twelve, and the famous Tacitus in one fourteen, and that means it's a hundred years later. And neither of them are actually talking about Jesus, but both of them are just talking about problems of Christians misbehaving
0: in the empire. So that's yeah. a first. We, don't have, we have zero in the first century. I hear what you're saying. I assume you're coming from the perspective, and I share this perspective, that the places where we see Josephus Flavius, Joseph bin Matadiao, speaking about Jesus were inserted later. Oh, those are fake. So you're
1: talking about famously Antiquities of the Jews, uh, Book 18, Section 5, Paragraph, uh, excuse me, Section 3, Paragraph 3. That's called... Uh, Testimonium Flavium, it's very, very famous. Kuli Alma it means everybody admits that's a complete interpolation, and it was, we know even who put that in. We know when it was put in. But I'll explain to you very briefly, there is a passage in in, in, in Antiquities. Antiquities was written in 93-94, in at the end of Josephus' life, let's say 20 years after his work called The War on the Jew, of the Jews. And there's this paragraph, that just stands out, which says, and there was this man called Christ, if you could even call him a man, because he did many great works, and he was very wise, and did many miracles. This is, we, every, even the Christians know that this is a corruption. And I'll explain to you why this we know for sure. The only thing they argue is maybe there was a skeletal version where he was sort of named very briefly, and then Christians added it in. Now. How do we know this? We know this because no one, not a single Christian church father, quotes this this paragraph until the year three twenty, let's say three twenty six, and it was Eusebius. He's the f- first church father. Eusebius is very famous because he's the historian of the church. He inserted it. So that means you have fourteen church fathers. Prior to the Council of Nicaea, prior to Constantine, that quoted Josephus extensively all over the place. Origin very famously, um, um, Tertullian—they um, all—they all quoted Josephus extensively, and they were challenged by why don't if this by the pagan Romans by the means the non-Jews who didn't like christianity they asked them if jesus was so true then why don't the jews believe in him and why is there no mention of him anywhere and none of them said oh it says it openly in josephus none of them said that so we know it's called the testimonium flavium that is a complete fraud that the church inserted later on and in fact if you I don 't want to get too technical on here, but we have manuscripts they all come from the church. every copy of Josephus comes from the church no, there 's nothing from Jewish sources. so we could even see that it grows like a cancer, this fake supposed quote. It, it grows. That means the earlier manuscripts don't have it as elaborate. And as they get later and later, Christian scribes who copied Josephus, and they did, would then add more and make it more fluffy. In fact, Origen, who's a very important third century church father, in his commentary on Matthew 16, says openly that Josephus was not a Christian. And for those who don't know who Origen is, he is one of the—he was— no doubt the smartest Christian apologist that ever lived. He is said to have written more than 2,000 books in his life. He knew Josephus backwards and forwards. He was only one of two church fathers that even knew Hebrew, only two of them that did, him and Jerome. But the point is that these guys, all the people from the third century, I mean, earlier than Eusebius, knew Josephus very well, quoted him extensively. And this just shows what the church will do. That means they will invent whole passages in Josephus just to lend credibility to their claims. One just one other point, Yehuda, because I know this is like this is wild. The church scribes were willing to interpolate, insert fake texts into their own Christian Bible. Their own Christian Bible wasn't even holy enough to not be tampered with. We have the end of Mark, the last 12 verses of Mark, the, uh, the first 11 verses of John 8. I can go on. I don't want to overwhelm your viewers or your listeners, but I want them to know that the, the doctrine of the Trinity was inserted, was interpolated into the Greek New Testament in the 16th century, in 1609. And that's First John 5, 7, and 8. Everything I'm telling you, even in a Christian Bible, they'll put brackets around and say later interpolation. So what the church did was they, in, they just put in stuff, just fake, just fake news, but this is fake verses, fake passages in order to lend credibility to the Christian claim. Now, I, I want to actually answer your question. Directly, because you ask me, what do I think? So I just need to make the point that we can't. There's there's reason to believe that Jesus never existed, but he was, as you said, and those are the precise words. He's a composite personality of Greek gods and some rabbis. Um, those people, people who hold that a mythesis, and then there, of course, the other end, believe that he was an absolute historical figure. My, so, what, I, what is very important is we can only speak about history in probability. What is more likely? Here's the thing. In my view, it is more likely that he was a historical figure, and this is going to surprise your listeners, because there are lies, there are corruptions in the New Testament that would have been unnecessary if Jesus n- never existed. So... So this is like really weird, but you have in the Christian Bible, for instance, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Now, as opposed to Nazareth. As opposed to Nazareth. We have only two claims that he was born in Bethlehem. Only Of the 27 books in the Christian Bible, only two make this claim, that Jesus was born to a virgin in, in Bethlehem, and that's Matthew and Luke. No one else believes that. No one else mentions that. There's not a word of that. In fact, in John 7, um, the argument is in John 7 they're asking, but isn't he supposed to be born in Bethlehem, not Nazareth? So only two writers in the New Testament make this claim that he was born in Bethlehem. And they tell us why they're making the claim. Because someone very important was born in Bethlehem, and that is King David. Bethlehem was the birthplace of King David, so they wanted Jesus to be born in the in the city of David. That's the reason. Okay, that's transparent. They say it openly. The problem is, and I write about this in one of my recent books, is the the infancy narrative, which is only found in Matthew and Luke, nowhere else. There's not even a mention of Jesus being born of a virgin anywhere else in the Christian Bible. Those two stories are completely, wildly contradictory. It's beyond the scope of this show to go into it, but for right now, know that these two stories are completely contradictory. It's not that they're giving us different information, their two stories just are completely opposite direction. It just completely opposite them. So what's obviously happening is everybody knows that Jesus is from Nazareth. And which is by the way, Nazareth is never mentioned in Tanakh, never mentioned in Josephus, never mentioned in the Talmud anywhere. So it's really a one-horse town in the upper galley. It's really a, a nothing of a nothing. Place. Now, the question is, why would Matthew and Luke work so hard to come up with these convoluted plot devices to get Jesus to be born in Bethlehem? If he was a complete figment of someone's imagination and didn't exist at all, it's sort of odd that they would have to do that kind of corruption. This is one example, I don't want to overwhelm the listeners, but because of the contradictions of the New Testament, which is counterintuitive, it therefore points us in the direction that if this person was completely made up out of nowhere, why would they have to do that? It wouldn't mean that just everybody says he's born in Bethlehem. So the convoluted stories in the New Testament seem to point us to, you know, on a scale of one to ten, I would say a six that he existed. And that he's one single person,
0: not a composite of several people.
1: No, But he's a composite in that the person that we see in the Christian Bible as the Son of God and so on, that's all composite. That means everything said about him, that he died for man's kind sins, that he's the Son of God, the incipit to the book of Mark, all that is all Greco-Roman. I mean, it's not an accident that Romulus, the founder of Rome, was born to a virgin on December 25th, that Buddha was born to a virgin, Krishna born to a virgin, that Zeus impregnated Hercules' mother, that Pythagoras, the famed thinker, philosopher, mathematician, born to a virgin. In the ancient world, the idea of intimacy was alien that a god could be born as a result of a, of a man and woman, that could not be so all the ancient gods in, in Egypt, Babylon, this was just across the board, were all born of a conception of the divine Zeus Zeus spent his whole career running around making ladies pregnant and that's all these gods were produced, he was a very busy for a person, so that is all an amalgam The question that people are asking is, was there some hippie itinerant Jew running around saying the world's coming to the end, the world's coming to an end, which there were a lot of people like that in the northern Galilee during a really difficult time. It was really difficult to be here in Israel in the first century. We were under the Roman Empire. It was a very bad situation. So that's what people are asking. No, everything about Jesus, all that is all been completely invented just the question is was there some hippie running around saying the world's coming to an end well, you know like like the, the people in Qumran
0: okay so g- getting into the practical today your fight against these missionary attempts on our people and our country you recently won a pretty significant victory against God TV against this attempt to create an evangelical television station in Hebrew on Israeli cable can you tell our listeners a little bit about that that was really stunning. And we all watched this together here in the
1: Holy Land. Uh, God TV is a huge internet multinational broadcast. They're in nearly 200 countries. And they see they were able to get a contract with Hot TV. Just so you know, Hot TV is the largest cable network in Israel, more than. They have more than 50% of the market, 700,000 Israeli homes. And they were able to purchase a license on hot TV um, where they would broadcast missionary material on the television and have Hebrew-speaking missionaries converting every Jew in Israel and, in a way, thank God— the CEO, Ward Simpson, said, we are going to convert 9 million Israelis to Christianity. He said it. So thank God, you know, thank God these these guys have a big mouth in a way. Sometimes your enemies say too much, and that's, that could be helpful sometimes. So what happened is I was able to take this, and we were able to bring it to the head of, uh, of communications here in Israel. And thank God it was really f- unbelievable, because what happened was— The Israeli government says, wait, you were given a license to do Christian broadcasting. Israel does, there are Christian shows, but it's not for evangelism. And a very important caveat, there's a law here in Israel that you cannot convert anybody who's under 18 years old. You can't missionize, you can't evangelize to minors. And this was the church's way through the back door of converting children to reaching them on through the television. So this was so this was a direct violation, and the result was that thank God it was Israel said we, you were taking away your license to broadcast, and then they could have appealed it. Hot TV already was getting an earful because it worked so hard. This was in all the papers all over the world that Hot TV said we don't want you. We're ending our contract with you, so they didn't even have a basis to come back to fight it because Hot TV is said we're out of this. This was a major success. And one other way, you know, Yehuda, you devoted your life to public education. This was uh, the, you know, Haman did more than, our, than the prophets in a way. Our enemies sometimes accomplish more than I could have. This guy, Ward Simpson, in an hour of broadcasting on different shows, which I put together and put up, did more against missionaries and raising awareness about the danger of missionaries than I did in 40 years. It was an amazing event on multiple levels. Wow. And they're done. They're not getting on TV. That's right. They cannot come back because they don't even have, a, they don't have even a vehicle to get back. I mean, it's hot TV says we don't want you now that israel canceled the license HaTV tv was under tremendous pressure because everybody was it was international story so the moment israel said no license you can't broadcast there in israel that means hot tv was off the hook of their contract so hot tv immediately said then we're not carrying you then god tv didn't even have a see god tv called it shalanu which means ours in hebrew so, God TV that didn't have the vehicle to which broadcast because Hot TV wouldn't take them anymore. So, they were done. I mean, really done. Gone. It was, it was, it was a victory that I didn't even completely
0: anticipate the full scope of it. Wow, you're fair. I'm happy that worked out the way it did. That would have certainly been very dangerous for a lot of our people. And I mean, the new danger now is this Bishop Glenn Plummer, correct? He recently moved to Israel
1: he physically moved and and i know your listeners are going move to israel i can't even fly to israel and this should blow your mind away and if it's not blowing your mind away, it means you're not paying attention to the news when we say there's a lockdown here in israel the scope means that no one but israeli citizens or people who have a visa can come to israel tourists can't come here if someone's i'm, I'm going to be at a wedding tomorrow And her family can't come from outside of Israel and can't even be there for the wedding. So the lockdown is that non-citizens or people who have a special expat working visa, no one can come into the country. And until Thursday, Yehuda and I couldn't even leave the country. No no one could leave the country. It was mind-blowing. Now, imagine that kind of lockdown that this guy shows up and goes i'm moving to israel and this guy's name is bishop Plummer, and i am good not only that he you know it's very i'm very grateful that he opened his mouth and he said i'm coming and i'm gonna we're gonna baptize people here in israel and and, and we we are going after the weakest community here in israel and that's ethiopian jews The 150,000 Ethiopian Jews in Israel. Obviously, they're newer Olim and they're still struggling to be well integrated. Now, Bishop Plummer, a very important caveat, is an African American. And he said, Look, I'm African American. They're black. That means we both have. African ancestry, so we automatically have a a better relationship. We have that connection and we can use that connection to reach them and to bring them to make them into disciples. And I have multiple recordings of him saying on television, just announcing it, and he and his wife just bragging about this. I, in fact, spent time last week in Tel Aviv meeting Ethiopian rabbis here in the country. And thank God it's drawing that community together. So, yeah, of course, we're exposing. And Bishop Plummer came here to Israel. And let me tell you something. I'm just going to say this. I'm not going to say more. He didn't even get the G5 visa that normally these other missionaries are getting to come into Israel. They're coming here by the plane load now in the lockdown. Jews can't visit. Jews who want to go to their families' weddings and bar can't come. But missionaries are coming here on a special visa. Plummer was given a
0: higher visa than that. He was what given reason? residency. In general, who is enabling? The, who is giving Plummer residency? Who is letting these missionaries into Israel when there's a lockdown and Jews can't even come? It's, at, it's happening at the highest levels. There is a mentality of this country,
1: and I'm going to be straightforward with the listeners. There's a mentality of this country, and that is the following— That is, people who are pro-Israel, they're very important to us. And they're the most important thing because we can't survive without America. We can't survive without American support. And we can't survive without these evangelical Christians. And these people are their handlers. And it comes from, I can't name names because I'm very grateful for our sources. But it comes from the, I mean, imagine high level. And then whatever you can imagine, go higher. Okay, so, I mean, do you understand what that means to come here, not even as with a working visa, but to come here with a residency? That's like a full green card in the United States. That is that is very hard to do and to do that in the middle of a lockdown. That's insane. So only just imagine only people at the highest level of government could sign off on something like that. Yeah, and as I said, the plumber was smart. He would have been quiet about it. But thank God, these people who are good, good friends open
0: their mouth. So what you're basically exposing is a slave mentality at the highest level, desperate for friendship. Oh,
1: yeah. And of course, the slave mentality. You know, if you study, I went to school social work. You study racism. One of the most pernicious elements of a slave mentality and racism is that the, the victim begins to believe what his oppressors say. That means deep down, the person who's been oppressed for thousands of years under the heel of the church, deep down begins to wonder and needs, I need, please love me. We need your recognition. This is the sickness, the mentality of 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 being a victim that the victim ultimately buys into what the oppressor is saying, and that 's what 's going on, like we need America, Canada, please say nice things ooh, Belgium, you said something really horrible, ooh European Union, please, please like me, please say nice things, look at all the technology we bring. And this is a sickness um, I, I want to say this I say it 's a sickness i I do understand you know when you 're two thousand years of of exile puts you in a, in that kind of mentality for sure. I understand that, but this is a big problem and it leads to the making very, really bad mistakes meaning I am this, the evangelical support for Israel, really, it could be very, very dangerous in general. It puts us in a bad position. But not, certainly not at the expense of Jewish children and not at the expense of our Jewish brothers who are from North Africa. Even one child should lose his faith and God forbid Hasva Halila become a Christian. Look, the whole point of Israel is a nation returning to its land fulfillment of god's prophecy so how do you then leave your community vulnerable
0: that's the same Mm -hmm. right and this is a sickness that exists at the highest levels of government in the state of israel
1: oh please believe me i'm not revealing anything these people are at the top there top, are top missionaries who are so powerful. I'll name one guy who's huge, and he has actually a museum here in Israel. He's at the highest levels, very, very close. to my, Mike Evans. This guy has been I, – I told you I'm doing this 40 years. Mike Evans was at the head of Jews, Jesus and other missionary groups to the Jews going back more than 40 years. And this guy is – they carry him around. They walk him around like he's – I don't know. The, he's like a bishop. I mean, he's a very, very famous missionary, and he is way, 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 way up. He has a, a whole museum here in Israel. So listeners know, where is the museum? Um, in Jerusalem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a museum, a history museum. It's really cool. a lot of money involved
0: in it. Is it the Friends of Zion Museum?
1: Yeah, the Friends of Zion Museum, right. That's him. So that That's a missionary operation. No, so that museum is a museum. It means it's a front. It's a museum. You go there... There's not going to be a word said to you that you need to accept Jesus. That museum has recognition here in Israel as a museum. It's not, but that museum is his baby. And this guy has terrorized Jewish communities for more than 40 years He's, I mean, just go on Amazon, look at all the books he wrote about how to convert Jews, and about Jewish evangelism. I mean, he is like a huge guy, and he's very powerful. He's a very powerful guy in this country, and he's a very, very dangerous missionary. And he's been doing this the longest, longest time. Look, he and I have been tangling up for a very, very long
0: time. So
1: he's big here. Yeah, he can fly back and forth whenever he wants.
0: So now we have what I find maybe most disappointing are the Jews in the Samaria and Judea regions, those who fight for the land of Israel, those who are deeply connected to Jewish identity, deeply connected to the historic aspirations of the Jewish people, willing to fight for the land of Israel, willing to fight for Jewish aspirations, who seem to be enabling a lot of missionary activity. You see a lot of Christian groups that are coming here to vineyards in the Shomron, to volunteer in different Jewish communities in the West Bank, but then going ahead and missionizing in Ethiopian communities and development towns in some of the weakest sectors of Israeli society. Well, let me ask you this, how many degrees of separation would you say generally exist between the Christians coming to volunteer in the Jewish communities and vineyards in the mountain region on the one hand, and those Christians directly involved in missionary work on the ground and some of the weaker communities on the other.
1: So there is no degree. They're the same thing. It's not just the guys who are going and, and harvesting, but these missionaries who are coming here, volunteering all over Israel, these are all coming from the evangelical world that I talked about earlier, the dispensationalists. They're not coming from the Greek Orthodox Church. They're all coming from that iteration of Christianity that wants to bring the Jews to Jesus and believes that will trigger the second coming, and that Jews have to be in control of Judea and Samaria. I mean, these are the same, the same group. It's not there's no separation. They are the same. We're talking about the evangelical Protestant fundamentalist Christians. These are the people who are coming here. They now they believe and this is this is where people get it wrong, and I don't want to misrepresent this. They believe that the Jews have to be in control of all the land of Israel in order for Jesus to make a second coming, and Jewish people have to be here in the land. They believe that, and they believe that the covenant with the Jews is eternal. They believe that, but they also believe the Jews have to be converted to Christianity, and that conversion will trigger the second coming. It's very important, and they're detached. They're not connected, but they use their love for Israel Their love for Judea and Samaria, and as you said, Yehuda, Judea and Samaria is the heartland of the Holy Land. Tel Aviv is not mentioned in Tanakh, but Hebron is everywhere. That's our birthplace, in a sense. So, therefore, they use their support for Israel to demonstrate that they're different kind of Christians. Because their chief message they want to get to every Jew is, those Christians that persecuted the Jews in the past, which was basically everyone, They're not real Christians, and the proof is they're not pro-Israel, and the Catholic Church is not pro-Israel. But you can see that we're so pro-Israel that we're working in Judea and Samaria, the heartland of the Holy Land. Therefore, we're different, and therefore don't hold it against us, the behavior of other Christians, even though the doctrines that they follow to convert the Jews are all in the Christian Bible. So they use their Zionism as a method to win the hearts of Jews in not only Judea and Samaria, but around the world.
0: Right. And those Jews in Judea and Samaria who do embrace them are essentially giving them a stamp of approval that helped them get into some of the weaker communities where people are more susceptible to their idolatrous missionary work. Unfortunately,
1: that is the case. Now, we just a caveat, Yehuda and I both know, the vast, vast majority of these holy Jews who are at the front line living in Judea and Samaria don't even know anything about this. This is very important. And they're just clueless. But yes, the people who are facilitating, yeah, are absolutely uh, leaders in Judea and Samaria, and it's a very dangerous situation. Absolutely. Uh, In their minds, the most important thing is to bring any kind of support for Judea and Samaria. And the God TV really, I think, was a wake-up because there were a lot of these people I'm not interested in naming, but a lot of people came out and said, you know, we, we realize there's a very serious problem. We condemn God, TV, and so on and so forth. So, you know, that should be said. That was a really great wake-up call. It's not everybody in Judea but it's but it's a problem. It's a problem of a mindset that we need the approval of others, and without the White House, and without... The evangelicals, we don't have a state, as though God has nothing to do with it.
0: Right. I have friends and you have friends. You know, as I said earlier, we were both at Israel National Radio about a dozen years ago. I'm sure we both know people who have been involved with some of these Christian evangelical groups. And what I often see the temptation being uh, in terms of giving that stamp of approval is, number one, let's be honest, most Jews living in the West Bank, in the Samaria and Judea regions, do feel isolated, do feel like the world is against us, do feel abandoned by most of the Jews around the world, especially Jews with the resources to really support the work that we're doing. And it can be very tempting. It can be very enticing when Christian Zionists come along with bags of money and and they're friendly people. They happen to all be nice people as individuals. They know how to smile. They know how to say nice things and to really offer support. And it's hard to refuse their money. That's number one. I think when nobody else is offering it, the Israeli government is not offering to support certain communities in any way. The, you know, Jews in the diaspora are not looking to support Jewish communities across the Green Line. So when Christian Zionists come along, it, it's very easy to convince oneself that there are plenty of good reasons to take their money. That's number one. And number two, I, I think there is this perception that exists among many Jews who see themselves really living out, living out Jewish aspirations and saying, that the Christians embracing us is actually some kind of manifestation of end of days, prophecies playing out, meaning first the Jewish people come back to life and we show that we're strong. And uh, then the Gentiles come and recognize also very tempting. So I see that, I see that a lot. And and one of the other dangers that maybe I want to hear your thoughts on is this very notion of Judeo-Christian civilization that we often hear. You know, hear it from politicians. What do you make of this notion of Judeo Christian civilization, Judeo Christian values? Is that something that you accept? Is that something you think we need to push back against? What are your thoughts?
1: My life, as I said, is wholly devoted to getting Jews out of the church and preventing Jews from getting involved in it. But let's be very frank here so we don't. Make, the term Judeo Christian refers to ideas that the Jews came up with and the Christians borrowed. Okay, so let's first come up with that. You know, people ask me, is there anything true in the New Testament? Well, anything true in the New Testament isn't new, and anything new in the New Testament isn't true, okay? Mm-hmm. So there is nothing—it's it's a nice term because everybody wants to get along. You know, we want to have ecumenical relationships, and we want to get along. So they come up with this term that we're on the same, but in, in reality, they, could anyone point to a, a Judeo-Christian ideal? I'm using that term for a moment, in quotation marks, that Christians came up with that the Jews didn't. Like, in what sense, how is this Judeo-Christian? It's just Jewish ideas that that other nations stole. I mean, they're appropriating, that's all. So I just wish they would appropriate more ideals of Judaism. Like, let's start with rejecting the doctrine of the Trinity, which is idolatry. That would be really nice. I would really appreciate it if the church would turn the clock back and reject the Council of Nicaea in 325 and reject the notion of worshiping a man as God when the Torah says in Numbers chapter 23 verse
0: 19 that God is not a man. That basically brings us to this idea of being the head and not the tail. That's essentially Israel's, you know, on, on Rosh Hashanah, you know, in my family, in my table, we have the head of a sheep on the table in Rosh Hashanah. And uh, the siman, you know, the, what we say is the Yerutzon is that Israel should be the head, not the tail. I, I think to sum up all of what we're talking about on this program, the problem comes down to Israel seeing itself as the tail and not the head, seeing itself as the influenced and not the influencer. You know, I, I want to be very clear. You know, I see the danger of accepting the notion of a Judeo-Christian civilization connected to the fact that it blurs the important differences between the Hebrew and Christian worldviews. Like Even if one can argue from a Jewish perspective that the spread of Christianity has played a positive role in improving civilization, improving the world, it's still crucial to recognize that a Judeo-Christian civilization is actually just... Christian civilization with acknowledgement that they stole some concepts from the ancient Hebrews, like you said. And they also stole concepts or borrowed concepts, however you want to say it, from other peoples and cultures, like Greek mythology, as you mentioned before. But when we perpetuate the myth of a shared Judeo-Christian civilization, we essentially encourage Jews to delude ourselves into thinking of modern Western civilization as our own which results not only in the abandonment of our own unique values and identity, but also in the negation of our entire historic mission. Like humanity has already been exposed to the aspects of Hebrew civilization shared by the Christian world. All we have left to give are the points that distinguish us, the things that separate us, meaning the unique contribution Israel needs to make to mankind now that we're back in our land, now that we're back on the stage of history, and now that we have power again, will come specifically from the areas on which we differ from Christianity and from where we differ with Western civilization. So downplaying these distinctions not only prevents us from decolonizing Jewish identity, but also from contributing the best of what we have left to give the world. So from my perspective, the very idea of a Judeo-Christian civilization holds us back from actually exploring what we have left to give to the world. That's exactly correct. So ultimately, I think that uh, the Christian world, you said 2 billion people, you know, I guess the greatest hope for them would be that uh, they replace their belief in a dead Jew with the living nation of Israel that's come back to life in modern times. Amen. to really see the connection to the creator and to the author of history through the nation of Israel. And we're not finished, meaning we still have a ways to go. You know, one one of the things that makes me so skeptical is that, you know, we've experienced in modern times, you know, in modern history, we've experienced material liberation, material decolonization. We came back to our land, we revived our language, we achieved political independence, but we still have a ways to go in terms of, Rebuilding Hebrew civilization in terms of returning to our authentic identity, and we're not really behaving, at least not on the surface, according to the values of our prophets and sages. So, I've become very suspicious of Gentiles who come and want to support us in this current political reality. You know, I almost have more trust for the ones who are criticizing us because those are the ones who are pushing us to be what we're supposed to be, whereas the ones who are embracing us now, you know, it's like Aesop's kiss in partial. You know, the kiss is really the bite sometimes. I suspect ulterior motives when people are telling us how great we are, when we're not yet acting as we're supposed to be acting in our land. Yeah, absolutely. So, two last questions for you, Rav Tovia Singer. First of all, what can listeners do to help combat this scourge of Christian missionaries coming into our land and targeting our people? That's number one. And number two, How can listeners find out more about your work? What website, URL, YouTube channel can they go to to see what you're doing and to follow you and support your good work? So
1: everything I'm doing, and it's the same thing for you, everything we believe in is about education, knowing, having knowledge. The most important thing you can do to protect yourselves and the ones that you love against these missionaries is to know i 'll tell you just really quickly, I was lecturing in Fairfax, Virginia, a few years, many years ago, uh, which is right outside of Washington, and a fellow I met a fellow who works for the Secret Service of the united States he he doesn 't protect the president he protects the currency of the United States he trains agents how to detect counterfeit currency because that 's one of the things the Secret Service does, and I asked them, "How do you do that do you Train the agents to uh, show them different kinds of counterfeit money so they can identify it. He said, The most important thing, Rabbi, we do is train agents what real money feels like and looks like. They're identifying features of the paper and the engravings. And if a agent is trained in what real money looks like, if you dare put a counterfeit in their hands, they will know it immediately. I want you to listen to me, listeners. Oh, I'm not saying to you that you need to become experts in the New Testament, the book of Luke, and so on. You don't need that. Know your own Torah. Understand Judaism and the values of Judaism and the mandate of the Jewish people. If you understand your own nation, your own faith, then no missionary will be able to touch you. That's number one. Number two is that our, our web, my website address is outreachjudaism.org, and I have a very large YouTube channel, Outreach. Uh, No, excuse me. My channel is my name, just Tovia Singer. I don't know, but there may be nearly a thousand videos there seen by millions of people. We just had our nine millionth viewer a few days ago. So it's a very big channel and come on, subscribe. It's live broadcasting and uh, it's
0: very exciting. Okay, great. Rav Tovia Singer, thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure to reconnect. Likewise, likewise, pig's chus. So listeners, if you haven't already, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and or Spotify. And please leave a rating and review because that can really help us get our message out to a much wider audience. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at visionmag.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. YouTube. This is Yudai Cohen. Vision Movement, Vision Magazine. You are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. If you want to check out the show notes, just go to visionmeg.org backslash the next stage 380.